turn with me to Mark chapter 1 as we continue in our series in the book of Mark. And there are uh, sheets that have been printed out. They are out on the the foyer if um, any kids want to grab those. I'll apologize in advance. I don't have uh, new candies yet, so um, won't be able to give out prizes for your your sheets today. <clears throat> so Mark chapter 1, verses 12 to 15 is where we find ourselves this morning. I'm going to read it, and we'll get into the message. Mark 1, 12. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Well, every step of life, there's always a measure of expectation and then satisfaction as we step into new things. Uh, if you're a teenager, maybe you look forward to finishing high school. And so there's expectation of that and, and stepping into the next phase of life. And, and when you get there, it's, there's satisfaction, there's fulfillment. Maybe it's you're looking forward to finishing the college degree or starting your career, getting married, having children. Well, there's, there's expectation and then satisfaction. There's fulfillment. And here as we look at Jesus' ministry, beginning in the, in the book of Mark here, we see much of that expectation of the past. Even all of history before this point, now being satisfied, now being fulfilled in the things that Jesus Christ is doing. He has come, God in the flesh, our Savior, for a specific purpose, and He's fulfilling all of the promises that have come before. So as we go into this passage, I hope we have a sense of that, the, the great fulfillment, the satisfaction from all history past that was expected. And so there are two parts of this message this morning. We're going to look at the temptation of Jesus and then the proclamation of Jesus. So first of all, Jesus' temptation in verses 12 to 13. And what we see here, again, compared to the other Gospels, is Mark really gives us the Coles notes or the, the spark notes. He summarizes what other Gospels take longer words to explain, um, especially here. There's much detail in the other Gospels given about this temptation that Mark doesn't give. But even here, just focusing mainly on what Mark says I want to break this down, and we can see three things happening here. So first of all, we see the direction of the Spirit to Jesus' temptation. Verse 12 says, The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And it's helpful to remember what has just come before as well. We saw that Jesus was baptized, and this was really a, a public revelation of who Jesus was. Really, it was a revelation of the triune God, but especially meant to highlight who Jesus was, that he is 
the anointed Son of God, the true servant of the Lord, who has come for the redemption of his people. Now, after that high point, after that, that public revelation, Jesus as the anointed one, immediately he's sent out into this wilderness, into the desert, into this hard place to be tempted. Now, notice here, this must be of great importance. This temptation must be very important because the Spirit himself drives Jesus out there, okay? And we see there's an urgency and an intensity to how the Spirit drives him out. We know that God is sovereign over all things, and God does not make mistakes in his leading. So we see here God clearly moving Jesus, the Spirit of God compelling him out there. And Mark uses his signature term here, immediately. So there's an immediacy to this. We see also that he uses a different word than the other Gospels here, where the other Gospels say the Spirit led Jesus out into the wilderness. Mark intensifies it. He says the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. Ekbalo, that's really to, to send him out powerfully, to drive him out. And so we know here that this must be something important and momentous that is about to happen. If the Spirit immediately, urgently, powerfully drives him out there, we will see it's a history-changing event that happens in the wilderness there. Now, second here, just a quick application to us uh, as, as those who know Jesus Christ. Affliction and testing are often part of God's will for his beloved children. Jesus was just announced as, as truly the only begotten Son of God, the beloved Son of God with, with whom the Father was well pleased. But then immediately after that, he's sent into this great affliction, this trial, this temptation. Now we also are God's beloved children. If we've believed in Jesus Christ, we are co-heirs with him. And we are well-pleasing in his sight through the righteousness of Christ. And when we go through affliction, sometimes we're tempted to think, maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe it's because God has abandoned me, that I'm not his child. And that's why I'm going through this trial, this affliction. We tend to think that God is not near when we go through these things. But what we see here is that that does not mean we are not loved by God when we go through affliction. Think of Job, another example, a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And yet God allowed him to go through such a severe time of affliction, even at the hand of Satan. So I know that many of you are going through suffering to various degrees. Know that these things do not indicate that God does not love you. God does love you. And even this may be a sign of his love, that he disciplines those whom he loves. As we go on here, we see the temptation of Satan in verse 13a. It says, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. So again, there's a lot more detail in other gospels, but what we see here is significant. 
First of all, we see the length of time that Jesus was in the wilderness. And it's 40 days there. He was in the desert being tempted by Satan. We know from the other Gospels, this was a time of fasting. Jesus was not eating that whole 40 days. And after it, he was hungry. So Satan tempted him. We know that often times of fasting and and prayer like this are times of preparation. Jesus often went away into desolate places to pray, especially before momentous occasions. And so Jesus is obviously being prepared here for his ministry that we will see commence in this passage as well. Now, this is not meant to be something prescriptive for us. The Bible doesn't tell us you need to do a 40-day fast just like Jesus does here. Of course, the Catholic Church has uh, invented Lent where for 40 days people will fast in various ways. Usually it's not really like Jesus fast here. They, they fast during the day maybe and then eat in the evening. Or, or maybe you hear people talking about fasting even from other things like social media or your, your phone or from TV or from soda pop, various things. This, this is not what Jesus was doing here. And he, he wasn't really meaning to be an example for us here. Rather, this is meant to emphasize Jesus' rare and even solitary greatness. There are resonances from Old Testament passages here. We have to understand it as well. In the Old Testament, there were other great prophets like Moses and Elijah who spent 40 days on the mountaintop fasting, receiving revelation from God. It's possible that that we're meant to see Jesus here as the, the true and better prophet, as the greatest prophet, the one in whom God speaks. Mark 9 also mentions that Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus on a mountaintop when he was transfigured, and then they faded away, and the, the voice from heaven came, this is my beloved son, listen to him. So it's possible that is in the background here. But especially what we're meant to think about here is Jesus in comparison to the wilderness testing of Israel. In Exodus 4.22, says that Israel was God's firstborn son. He redeemed them as an adopted son to be his servant. And he rescued them from Egypt. And then after that, they went into the wilderness. They went to Sinai and Moses was up there for 40 days, received the law and delivered it to the people. Then afterward, they came to the cusp of the promised land. God was telling them to go into that land and, and conquer it. Conquer the Canaanites, that he would be with them. But what we see there is that those spies went into the land for 40 days, spying it out, and they came back with a bad report. They were unbelieving. They did not believe in God's power or his promises. And so they said, we can't go in there. The Canaanites are too mighty for us. And and so we can't go in that land and, and conquer it. So God in judgment sent them back into the wilderness for 40 years. A year for every day that they spied out the land. And that was a time of testing, it says in Deuteronomy 8.2, to see what was in their hearts, 
whether they would obey God's commandments or not. What we see through the book of Numbers is they did not obey. Rather, they complained often. They were unbelieving. They rebelled against their leaders. They were immoral and idolatrous. And so they were judged in the wilderness. Even while God was very gracious to them. And provided for all of their needs. What we're meant to see here, friends, is Jesus is a new Israel. Jesus is God's only begotten son who has come down in the flesh. And when he is tested, we see what is in his heart, whether he is a truly obedient son. And so we see Satan's temptation here, um, not just a testing, but a temptation Satan was enticing Jesus to try and to get him to sin. And it, we should note here that Satan, Satan, his name here means the enemy. He is the enemy of God and his people, and so the enemy of Christ. He is an actual figure throughout Scripture. Revelation 12.9 calls him that ancient serpent, the devil, the deceiver, of the whole world. He is a deceitful spirit. He spreads lies. He twists God's word. He would try even to stop the Messiah from his mission here. So in the other gospels, we see details about what Satan does. He tries to deceive using even the word of God. He, he twists it and so tries to get Jesus to sin. Jesus, every time, counters with the word of God. And so the devil flees from him. Now, as we think about Jesus even being tempted, some have posed that there's a, a potential problem with this. Well, if Jesus is God and he's sinless, how could he be tempted? James 1, 13 to 15 would tell us that God is never tempted. God can't be tempted. Because he's righteous. He, he, he never sins. God never tempts anyone either. Rather, it's sinners lured and enticed by their own desires. That's when we sin. And, and so, was Jesus tempted exactly in the way that a sinner would be? Well, no. For us, we know we have sometimes outward temptations. Things that come across our path that, that might trigger temptation. Satan may come to us with his lies and, and try to tempt us to sin. But we also have within us a sinful heart. Those desires that are luring us toward whatever is tempting. Jesus, since he was God and he is righteous and he never sinned, was never tempted inwardly in his own heart. But since he, as the God-man, came in a human nature that was even weak like our flesh is, he could be tempted by the devil in this way. We see that the devil even tried to manipulate him to sin, even pushing upon his weak points. Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. He was now hungry. He was in a hard environment. He was tired. There were many dangers around him. And so Satan tried to hit him at his weak points. We know that 
when we're hungry or when we're tired or when we're caught up in bad weather or difficult circumstances, it can be harder for us to endure temptation, right? Those circumstances never excuse our sin. We're able to endure even in those times. God will give us a way of escape, he says. But we all know what it's like to be hangry, for instance, right? When you're hungry, it's easier for you to sin. Jesus was weakened even in these ways as we are. Yet Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And this was part of what Jesus had to go through in order to become our perfect, qualified, complete high priest. He suffered when tempted so that we also can come to him for help when we are tempted. Now, what is the significance of this, that Jesus was tempted even by Satan and he endured faithfully? Well, we need to to think back to the beginning of the Bible to understand the full significance of this. We know that in the beginning, Adam was created upright and holy. Our God is the God who created the heavens and the earth. He made human beings in his own image in six days. It was not the result of a a big bang explosion and millions of years of evolution that these people came to be. Rather, God created them specially and he created them holy. He created them righteous in the beginning, yet able to fall into sin. And we see in the garden there in Genesis 3, that same serpent, the same Satan who's mentioned here, came along. He came in the form of a snake, a fitting form as he was so slippery and sneaky and crafty in his ways. He twisted the word of God. He, he set this sin before them. God had told them not to break this command of his not to eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so he set before them this temptation. What did they do? They took the bait, right? They took the bait. They sinned. They rebelled against God in a despicable manner. And they were at once filled with shame because of the guilt of their sin. And they tried to hide themselves from God. And as a result of that one sin, sin and death and condemnation spread to all men. So that now the default for human beings is that we're born into this world as sinners who sin and are condemned before a holy God. Because we also follow in the footsteps of our father, Adam. And we take the bait. We have all fallen into sin, rather plunged ourselves into sin when we have been tempted. And so from that point, the the world was cursed. And the question then is, who can undo this curse? Well, we see from the very beginning, God gave an answer in Genesis 3.15, that there would be a seed, an offspring, a son of the woman, who would come into the world, 
who would crush Satan's head, even at the expense of his own heel being bruised. He would have to be wounded, but he would defeat that ancient serpent, the devil. And so genealogies were traced from that time. Who will be this son? When will he come into the world to save us from Satan, our enemy? What we see here is that Jesus is that offspring. Jesus is the last Adam, as 1 Corinthians 15.45 calls him. Jesus comes into our world, taking upon human flesh as a new Adam, a new representative for all those who will believe in him. He comes and he is the one faithful under temptation, the only one in all of history who never takes the bait. And so where Adam disobeyed, Jesus obeyed. Where Adam fell, Jesus triumphed. Where Adam brought sin and death and condemnation for all men, Jesus brings righteousness, life, grace, and salvation to all who believe. So this temptation that we have here is the beginning of Jesus' victory over Satan as the one who will ultimately crush his head upon the cross, defeating the work of the devil, which is our sins. Jesus is the last Adam and the last Israel, reversing the curse that was brought into the world through the sin of humanity. That is the significance of this event. And so it was long awaited and expected, and now we see the satisfaction of it in Jesus Christ. We also see here in Mark's account what I think is evidence of the protection of God in verse 13. It says there, And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. The two things that we see here, I would say, are tokens of God's favor, of the Father's favor and protection of his faithful Son. Have you ever stopped and just considered where it says he was with the wild animals? Seems in, uh, kind of a strange comment to make. Um, what does it mean by that? Jesus was just hanging out with some animals in the desert? No, these are dangerous animals. These are, these are wild beasts. The commentator Hendrickson, he says, uh, in that Jordanian desert, there were such wild beasts as hyenas, jackals, panthers, even lions at that time in the wilderness. And so this is a dangerous place. This is perilous. You think about uh, if I was to go up into the Saddle Hills for 40 days without a, a rifle, and I was among the grizzlies and the, the black bears. Do you think I would make it out alive? Well, don't answer that question. But, um, that would be a similar situation. Yet we see that he was protected. We know that Jesus had control over all things. All natural phenomena. Even, even animals. And God, I, I think, is shown to be protecting his faithful servant. Just like in the past, you think of Old Testament stories where 
Daniel, a, a faithful servant of God, was thrown into the lion's den and, and God stopped the mouths of the lions as Daniel prayed because he was a faithful servant of God. You think of his friends who went through the fiery furnace, yet they were preserved because of their faithfulness. Again, I think of Israel who was unfaithful in the wilderness and what happened to them. Well, God even at one point sent wild beasts after them, the fiery serpents who bit them and killed them because of their sin. Well, Jesus, as the faithful servant, is completely protected, even in the perilous wilderness. And we also see that the Father sent his angels to minister to Jesus' needs, whether physical or spiritual in encouragement. They came to Jesus and ministered to him. As Hebrews 1.14 tells us that these are ministering spirits sent out by God. This is a great picture of how God may call his faithful ones into difficulties, but in the end, he will preserve them from many evils along the way and give them encouragement and ministry. Friends, as we consider just this first part, I want to just make a few applications already. <clears throat> Since Christ was tempted in this way, he is to us, as Hebrews says, a merciful and sympathetic high priest. We have to understand this, that Jesus has been made for us a perfect sympathetic high priest, even in our weakness, in our temptation, and in our sins. Friend, when you are tempted, when you even sin against God, after you have been tempted, you're not to think of God of Jesus Christ as standing above you with a hammer ready to condemn you and beat you over the head for your sins. Rather, Jesus is standing above you yearning with merciful affections, interceding for you, advocating for you as your great high priest who understands your struggle because he came down into it and so even in temptation, he can help you as your sympathetic high priest. Know that, believer. We should also see here that since Christ was faithful when tempted, he can be our perfect substitute. If Jesus had sinned, if that were possible, he would not be able to be our perfect sacrifice upon the cross. But we can trust in his sacrifice because he was the righteous, spotless lamb of God. When he was tempted, he was faithful and he lived that perfect life of righteousness. In his active and passive obedience, he lived righteously. He died sacrificially and we can trust in that as our way to God. When you are tempted and you take the bait even, you have to know that you have hope in Jesus Christ. Because he did not take the bait, but he did die for you. Thirdly, we need to see here that Christ is our example of how to endure in temptation. Jesus here endured full of the spirit of God and full of the word of God. He was able to 
counter the attacks of Satan when Satan twisted Scripture because he had Scripture always in his heart. And so likewise, if we're to resist Satan, we need to pray for the Spirit's power in the midst of temptation. We need to pray also that we would have the Word of God in our hearts and minds and actually apply ourselves to knowing the Word, to memorizing the Word, to hiding it in our hearts so that we would not sin against God. And Jesus shows us here that if we resist Satan in such a way, he will certainly flee from us. Fourthly here, just just stop for a moment and behold Christ. Behold the Christ who is so glorious as the new Israel, as a new Adam, greater than any before or after, perfect in every way, faithful under temptation, as no one else has been in history, nor ever will be. As we behold Christ as the last Adam here, may our affection for him grow and our trust in him grow. As we sang earlier, come behold the wondrous mystery. He, the perfect son of man, in his living, in his suffering, never trace nor stain of sin. See the true and better Adam come to save the hell-bound man. Christ, the great and sure fulfillment of the law, in him we stand. Behold him, stand in him. Jesus, our last Adam. Now, secondly, we have to move on to the second section here. Jesus' proclamation in verses 14 to 15. Jesus now, having been so prepared for his ministry, publicly announced as the Son of God, and then tempted as the last Adam in the wilderness, we see that he now goes into his ministry of preaching, of proclaiming the gospel. And I want to highlight three things here. First of all, note the occasion of Jesus' preaching. It says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. <clears throat> it was upon the arrest of John that Jesus decided to switch gears and left the wilderness, left the region of the Jordan, likely down near Judea, and he went up into that northern region of Galilee to begin preaching. Now, why exactly did he do this? I think at least we can say this, that Jesus at this point was not looking for trouble. Jesus was not looking for a confrontation with the authorities and seeing that John the Baptist had been arrested and so things were heating up in that region, he went away then into Galilee. Jesus was wise here to avoid unnecessary confrontation. Sometimes when we are in times of heating up, uh, of a, a persecution that we see around. Maybe we're tempted to have sort of a come at me attitude, that, that we want a confrontation. Jesus shows that sometimes it's wise to avoid such things. Beside, besides, Jesus knew that it was not his time yet to be arrested. 
Jesus knew there was a time. He knew there would be a time where he would put himself forward to be arrested, to be betrayed into the hands of sinners, that he might go to the cross and finish his work there on our behalf. Jesus knew that it was not that hour yet. Plus, we see here, as we read in Matthew 4, as Ken read for us, that Jesus was fulfilling prophecy in going to Galilee at this time. Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2, had spoken of this great light that would shine in that region of Galilee of the Gentiles. And so Jesus fulfills prophecy in going there first in his ministry to proclaim the gospel and and spread this light in the darkness of that region. So we see there the occasion of Jesus preaching. I also want you to see, just for a moment, the fact of Jesus preaching. The very fact that Jesus preached. The fact that Jesus was a preacher. Here the word proclaiming is that word keruso, which is so often used in the New Testament of preaching. It conveys a sense of majesty and authority. That word was often used of a herald that would come from a king, declaring a message with authority to the citizens of a land. This is proclamation here of the king of kings. Proclamation of divine truth with urgency and authority. Later on in Mark 1, in verse 38 to 39, we see Jesus preaching again and What he says there is instructive. We'll look at it obviously more later when we get there. But he says, he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Jesus was a preacher. Jesus, even even though we see him, healing, casting out demons, what he recognized as his primary task was to preach the gospel. Preaching and teaching was Jesus' bread and butter. He knew that that world that he was living in needed preaching. It needed the good news proclaimed to it. Today, there's a loss of trust in preaching. Often people view preaching in an authoritative manner as as too authoritative, too too harsh, too condemning sounding for someone to stand up and make authoritative claims from God's word over people's lives. That's not something that's in vogue today. We don't like that. In fact, most pastors have turned from preaching. Instead, they might give a a lecture, a heady lecture, maybe a fireside type chat or a motivational speech. But what we need, what Jesus knew that the world needed at that time and what we need today as well is preaching. We need people to herald the word of God. We need men who will deliver God's message with authority, not their own message in their own choice tone. We need 
the preaching of the gospel. And just as Jesus' preaching was a great light piercing the darkness of Galilee, so we need to preach Christ today because that is the light in the darkness of the world. It's God's word that brings life. Even daily to us as Christians, we need the word of God. We do not need the words of men. And this broken, lost world needs the gospel, the good news about what Jesus has done. Thirdly, here we see the content of Jesus' preaching. What is it that Jesus actually proclaimed? It says, first of all, that Jesus was proclaiming the gospel of God. It's interesting to think about Jesus, again, in in light of Moses. Moses went up for 40 days upon that mountain, and he came down. What did he deliver? He delivered the law. Now Jesus comes out of that 40 days in the wilderness. What does he deliver? He delivers the gospel. He delivers good news. As we spoke of before in our first message in Mark, as Mark began his gospel, he says this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What is gospel? It's good news. It's a, a victory proclamation. Often as people would run from battle and proclaim, our army has won. We've succeeded. There's, there's victory. And we saw back in Isaiah chapter 40 and so on that it speaks of this, this preaching of good news that Israel would herald good news of God's reign and redemption. This is what Jesus is doing here. He's heralding the reign and redemption of God. And it's called here the gospel of God. Of God. Why is it the gospel of God? Well, first of all, it's a message from God. This was a divine message from heaven itself. Secondly, it's the message about God's activity in Christ to save sinners. It's about God's doing, what God would accomplish in Jesus Christ. Thirdly, the gospel is God's doing from beginning to end. This is the work of a sovereign God. He brings good news to us because he has done a good work for us. Friends, as we think about the gospel, one of my favorite places to go to understand just what the gospel is, is, of course, Romans chapter 1 to 3. Paul begins that section there in verse 16 and he talks about the, the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And then what does he go on to describe? He describes the depravity of man and how all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We see that there's bad news before the good news. The bad news is that the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth from the, the absolutely reckless and ignorant pagan to the goody two shoes religious church kid. None of us can escape the fact that based upon our own works, our own doings, our own thoughts and deeds and desires and and everything about us, we cannot stand before a holy God and be 
justify. He cannot declare us innocent or righteous, but rather must declare that we are guilty. And so we're condemned before a holy God to his eternal wrath. And our mouths are shut. We can say nothing in our own defense. It's the bad news. But then comes in the good news, which is that there is a righteousness that we may possess. A righteousness not our own, since we are not righteous by our own good works. Rather, we need to look away from ourselves to Jesus Christ. In him, there is a righteous standing before God. Because he has come as a sacrifice, as the propitiation for our sins, bearing the wrath of God and appeasing the wrath of God in our place. And so when we believe in him, merely believe in him, trust in the work that he has done in his death and resurrection, he pays for our sins, he forgives our sins, and we stand clothed in his righteousness, justified in the sight of a holy God. That is the gospel in its fullness. And Jesus was beginning to proclaim that this good news was coming in, in himself. And so, what exactly did he say about this gospel? We have two more indications of what he said here. It says in verse 15, And saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. The time is fulfilled. And in the Greek here, it's the perfect tense for that verb fulfilled, which I believe can be translated then, the time has been fulfilled. It's even stronger there. We talked about this already, that there was an age of promise. There was expectation for the whole Old Testament history that there would be a time when God would act in a Messiah. What we see here is that age of fulfillment has dawned in the coming of Jesus Christ. The time has now been fulfilled. All the expectations and promises of the past are being satisfied. Galatians 4 verse 4 says that Jesus came in the fullness of time. It was exactly the right time that God had planned before all ages for the Savior to come into the world and begin proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Romans chapter 5 verse 6 says that at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The time has now been fulfilled as Jesus begins his ministry in Galilee. All the promises and expectations of the past are being fulfilled. And he says here, secondly, the kingdom of God is at hand. And again there, the verb is in the perfect tense. So I might translate it here, the kingdom of God has drawn near. The kingdom of God has drawn near. As we look back to the promises of the Old Testament, See that it all had to do with this kingdom that was coming. God would set up a kingdom in the latter days. He would send a king into this world, anoint a king, 
to reign over the whole earth. We think of a passage like Psalm 2. This is my son, today I have begotten you. I will give you the nations as your heritage. And we're all commanded there to trust in this king, to take refuge in the king, lest we perish in the way. But blessed are those who take refuge in him. There was an anointed king promised, a Messiah who would come, who would bring God's rule and reign to the world once and for all. And so we see Jesus here announcing that with his coming, the start of his ministry, the kingdom of God had now drawn near. Why? Because the king had drawn near. You can now reach out and touch him. He was here coming in fulfillment of those kingdom promises to set up an eternal kingdom that would have no end. He had drawn near. And so now they must enter into this kingdom. As we think about the kingdom, we understand that in that day, the people were expecting a certain kind of kingdom. They were expecting a king to come and throw off the shackles of the Roman emperor, to to throw off the shackles of, of the people they were enslaved to, to redeem Israel, to give them back their own land and, and their freedom. They were very much physically and earthly oriented in their understanding of the kingdom that would come. But this kingdom doesn't come first in that way. Rather, it comes as a saving reign, as God's rule extending in human hearts, as they believe in this Christ and become his servants, as people are transferred from the domain of Satan and all the slavery that was imposed on them, that they were in fear of death because of their sins, they can now be transferred out into the kingdom of this beloved son, this kingdom that is eternal and forever. It's a kingdom, Jesus would say, that is entered by faith like a little child. You have to humble yourself to come into it. You have to be born again, completely renewed in your inner being to enter into it. You have to sell everything to acquire this treasure of the kingdom. Many are called into this kingdom, but few are chosen. And so Jesus came proclaiming this kingdom, this kingdom that would ultimately be inaugurated through Jesus' work on the cross and his redemption as he paid the price to free sinners from Satan's domain and bring them into this blessed kingdom under God's rule. This is God's redemptive kingdom inaugurated by Christ that is now spreading through this world, through the church. Now, how are we supposed to respond to that message of the kingdom? Jesus gives us the answer here. Repent and believe in the gospel. We see that this really is the only proper response to the gospel of the kingdom. This is the only acceptable response to the gospel. For one, to repent. That is to change your mind, leading to a change in behavior, to turn to God, away from idols, to seek 
the Lord and live. You're going one way in your sin, dead in your trespasses, following the course of this world. You need to stop. You need to look in the other direction and see that you are a sinner before a holy God. And you need to turn to that God and confront everything that he says about you. As John even proclaimed repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You need to recognize that you're a sinner and confess those sins to this God. You need to have that kind of U-turn, that repentance, that turning toward God. And you also need to believe. You need to believe in the gospel. You need to muster all the trust that you can and place it only at the cross of Jesus Christ. You need to cast your anchor of hope upon him. You need to accept Jesus Christ, receive Jesus Christ, rest upon Jesus Christ alone and the work that he has done in order to be accepted into God's kingdom. Like clinging to a rope when you're rock climbing, you need to make Jesus your only trust. You need to believe in this good news, this gospel proclamation of what Jesus Christ has done, even as the last Israel, as the last Adam, as the only faithful one who died faithfully for our sins upon the cross and then was raised. You need to trust in this Jesus Christ, the only faithful last Adam. So in conclusion, friends, this message confronts us today. We have such a Savior who came into this world, who is tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Are you going to believe in him? Are you going to repent and put all your trust upon Jesus Christ? Because he proclaims the kingdom of God has drawn near. It's drawn near to you this morning. Have you turned to him? Have you trusted in him? This is the very command of Jesus Christ to every single heart here this morning. Repent and believe in the gospel. And friends, if you have believed in this gospel, you must also become a preacher, sharing that good news that the kingdom of God has come. There's a refuge out of all the kingdoms of this world. You can enter the very kingdom of God's beloved son through faith in him. And so share that message. As we'll see, we must rise up to follow Christ and so become fishers of men. May God fill you with a sense of all that Christ has done for you and call you into his kingdom to work for his sake. Let's pray.